Hello, welcome back to the Live Race Free podcast. This is episode five, Issues Facing Black Families, part two. All right, welcome back to the podcast. And this is uh, episode six, part two of the top issues facing the black community and how we can take those those lessons to counteract, um, uh, how we can take those issues and transform them into ideas and values to counteract those issues starting from our own homes. Um, This is change within the community without the need for politicians. Thank you very much. Starting from our very own homes. So um, where we left off, I talked about um, how uniformity of thought or lack of diversity of thought within the black community was one. The victim mentality was another. Um, And then these next two are probably the two that um, are responsible for most of the main issues that people think of when they think of issues facing the black community. They fall under these two categories. Okay. So uh, the first is urban terrorism. And by the way, these are terms that I borrowed from Talib Starks, um, who's got three books out. I can tell you about him a little bit later. Um, And the other is out of wedlock births or um, babies or children born out of wedlock um, in the black community. Okay. So going back to number one, um, urban terrorism is his term that he uses to describe um, the lack of safety and stability that exists in cities across America. Um, that is mainly due to um, violence, mainly by um, other black men, um, and perpetuated against mainly other black men. But that creates an extremely unsafe, uh, dangerous, unstable uh, environment. Um, and so from this, of course, you have the underlying issues, you have vulnerable school zones, um, you have high crime rates, you have public housing, you have obviously high homicide rates definitely coming from that. And, um, you know, as a result of that, you don't have high reading levels. You don't have great education rates or graduation rates. Um, and, um, and that is, this all stems from from urban terrorism, which is we've created, we've allowed for a culture to grow where violence rules the streets and violence and, and gunshots and drug dealings and um, prostitution and such is kind of the modus operandi in the world that lots of kids are growing up in without fathers, mm-hmm. with only with mother-led homes. Okay, so that takes us right next to, right to um, the next one, which is out of wedlock babies and births where you have, of course, the mother-led homes, like I just said, um, the culturally cultural lack of responsibility of fathers, um, abortion on demand available in a lot of those neighborhoods. And then, to top it all off, it's supported by the government because you have, um, because of welfare, right? So kids, are, babies are born, mother goes and picks up her check, mother does not need father in the house, father does not have a need to um, be a father, et cetera, and the cycle continues. So we're all very familiar with that. Those are the two main um, problems that uh, we kind of seek perpetually happening. Um, And these are the things that you have the um, 
you know, the big organizations and the politicians like to cite because they're factual. They're, they happen all the time. They happen all around us. Our music and movies and shows and everything kind of glorify it even or reference it as a reference point. And so it is kind of front and center in all of our minds, whether or not we live in those environments. So what do we do about this? <clears throat> How can we handle these types of situations from home? Um, I think the first thing we need to do is talk about it. I have plenty of friends who have, who have like, you know, I think all of us can kind of relate to this. Um, you have the family that has the semi-functional kind of culture. You have uh, the kid that, the kids that kind of like grew up on the straight of narrow. And then you have the ones that went off the deep end with the bad friends and, um, you know, just didn't, didn't end up as, you know, maybe didn't graduate, end up pregnant, um, you know, end up getting, getting incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera, because of the choices that they made. So, you know, if you're in a place, obviously where you're not surrounded by that kind of violence, and I'm talking to mainly the families and people that, um, I mean, I guess I'm assuming, but anyway, this is a learning process. Um, the one thing that you're going to want to teach your kids or two from a school standpoint is you've got to teach them and instill in them a love for reading. And if that seems like that's way out of left field from what I just talked about, here's what I'm explaining. Um, reading is extremely powerful. Reading is extremely valuable. And um, the ability to read is empowering to a kid. It gives them a sense of currency and agency from a young age. And that's extremely important, especially if your environment is one where there's, you know, you know, not necessarily a lot of predictability. And guess what? We guess what? We are all finding ourselves in that kind of scenario right now with the quarantine. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen. So having, you know, giving giving your kids that ability to read and it doesn't have to be. OK, now, before you overthink this, um, the teaching, instilling in your children a love for reading starts with you reading to them. Picture books, sitting down where reading is an emotional connection time, where they're snuggling involved, they're sitting with you, on you, um, reading the same books over and over again. Um, these types of things, like putting aside, like if you're not used to it, it can sound very uncomfortable and it can sound very much like a chore. But on the other hand, it can also sound like a very unifying thing, something that really brings you and your kids together, brings your family together. I can tell you, you know, from my experience, um, you know, Elliot, my, my, my oldest um, is reading now and, um, and my, my next youngest is building up her reading skills. And it's an enormous conf confidence booster when they're able to learn a new phonogram and put two... Um, put an idea together or see an idea come to life on the page when they put the words together. It's very, very empowering. But I can tell you from my experience that um, at first it was very much felt like another job, you know, it felt like a lot of work. Um, but the time now, like I can be in the middle of my school day and feel exhausted. And when we go to reading time and I get a book out and I'm reading to them, even in those days where I am dozing as I'm reading, hear me, this is not rocket science. The kids just wake me up and I keep reading and it is still so sweet. They want to 
go on. They want to turn the next page. They want to read the next book. But we're all cuddled together on the couch. They're all looking at the pages. Sometimes they're, you know, off on the floor, like building a, you know, a castle with blocks or something like that. But they're still listening. But it's in intimate time. So anyway, teaching your kids how to read, that's going to raise up, you know, their, their, it builds their confidence. It builds unity and closeness between you and, and your kids. And guys, that is, that is half the battle. You know, if you're building a unity and closeness with your kids from a young age, they're going to take with a lot more weight the values that you teach them. If you're not able to do that and you're not building that, um, that if you have all these, you know, if there, if there are objective reasons why, you f why you're not able to do that, look at your life, look at your day, look at your time and your other responsibilities. And really, I highly encourage you to consider moving some things around, cutting some things out, start with screen time and make time to read out loud to your children, read them picture books, read them great stories, um, Try to build in variety. Don't always go to the characters, character stories and character um, things that you see on, on TV. The sh you know, it, those are great for their own reading when they want to read those stories. They have that interest like, oh, I want to read a Paw Patrol book or whatever. But um, but when you're reading to them, you can, you know, pick these great stories. Um, anyway, teaching them to read, that's one of the, that's part of the, one of the biggest reasons why, um, the, 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 in the school zones, like they're, they're not getting, um, the con continuity of, of, of good education that they, that they should, because it's trouble at home and trouble at school. It's hard on both, on both sides. And so the reading rates are, the literacy rates are extremely low. So how do you counter that? You make sure at your home, they're high. You know, that the, the, that's the best thing you can do because that's going to spill over into your community and your kids can read and their cousins can read. Or if they can't, then they're sharing that love and they're creating that interest. It spreads. That's extremely powerful. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time on that. Moving on. Teaching your kids to read. Um, number two, teaching your kids to, to pick the right friends. Um, I have a very dramatic story about a very well-known um a family psychologist who has had this tremendous career that has spanned decades and even involved a stint serving in the White House. Uh, I think it was the Reagan administration. Um, might have been Carter. I, I can't remember the timing. Anyway, um, I want to say it was Reagan. Um, anyway, when he was growing up, this is the importance of picking good friends. When he was growing up, he started getting involved with the wrong crowd. And when his dad found that out, his dad quit his job. They moved out of town because their, his parents understood the importance of having the right influences. Now, not everyone can do that. But as a result of that, that boy became this huge family influencer who affected millions of households. And his name's James Dobson. Um, the importance of picking your picking the right friends and having the right friends cannot be understated. Do not consider um, who your friend who your kids choose as friends as something that is chance and you can't 
and that you can't help and you have no choice over. You do have choices over it, but it starts with teaching your kids how to tell who's a good friend and who's not. Um, and the basics, the you know, the underlying foundation for that is going to be if you're teaching them the values of being kind and respecting authority and listening to the teacher and things like that, and they're able to identify those who don't, that's going to be a signal for them of that's probably not who my parents would want me to hang out with. Um, so just in the interest of not spending all the time on, <laughs> on one subject again, that's just... Um, that's another tip that is going to kind of counteract the, um, you know, the uh, the issues that we were talking about. All right, high homicide rates. Um, all right, so I have a quote from Talib Starks on the that he actually quoted from a source, the Tuskegee Institute. Um, you're familiar with the Tuskegee Institute being in uh, historic HBCU. Um, and so they've done studies on, um, um, black culture and black statistics. This one particularly being regarding homicide rates in cities. Um, all right. So I'm going to quote this and it kind of ties to the victim mentality, victimology thing. So it's, there's kind of a dovetail there, but the reason why I want to quote this is not to like, you know put blame anywhere or anything like that. But again, if we're going to have diversity of thought and have challenges in our thinking about and our assumptions about, about um, Black issues, and I don't want it to be a blame game, who's to blame. I want it to be a how can we move forward conversation, okay? Um, the homicide rate is no joke. It's so, so high. Um, we want to say on the one hand, like, oh, you know, people don't look at black men as safe men, and that's unfair. When the reality is, sometimes black men don't look at the other black men and consider themselves safe. And I think that was, let's see, I cannot give you the, the stats on that, but that was a quote from someone who was talking about walking down the streets in Philadelphia one night. And feeling, and, you know, he's a black man himself walking down a sidewalk and, you know, a, a group of of, uh, of black young guys walks by and he feels unsafe. And this was not a guy who was, you know, he was, you know, kind of a progressive thinker who, um, I, think he, I think he was a writer. I can't remember the stat, the details on that. Um, I can get that for you another time. But, um, but anyway, that's just an example to say you're not racist or judgmental for thinking that way, because statistically speaking, we have a problem in our Black communities regarding homicides with Black youth. It is a fact, okay? And here's the, and and stating it as a fact is not hateful, you know? I'm not doing this to hate people, obviously. Stating it as a fact to say, like, look, guys, we need to, if we can't speak the facts, which facts, you know, they're not, they don't have feelings, they, and, you know, they don't lie. They're telling part of the picture. You have to have all the facts, obviously, to have the truth picture. But anyway, um, the quote is this. Black-on-black black murder eclipses the number of blacks lynched over the course of 80 years, roughly every six months. I'm going to say it again. Today, 
black-on-black murder rates, or rates is not it, black-on-black murder eclipses the number of blacks lynched over the course of 80 years, roughly every six months. So to put that in perspective, um, lynchings were horrible, obscene, evil, terrible. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Over the course of 80 years, I mean, that is a very long time to be terrorized by scary, um, by lynchings and, you know, this and very little defense or speaking out about that. Terrible. 80 years. I mean, that's a generation. 3,000. Oh, man, I lost my number. I think it's 3,644, something like that. Um, but over just around 3,500 lynchings over 80 years nowadays. And that's terrorists. I mean, I would call that terrorism for sure because it was an ideological group that was attacking blacks because of their skin color. Crazy. Okay. Evil today. This is why Tlaib Sartre calls it urban terrorism. Today, we have that same number of blacks being killed by blacks every six months, not over 80 years, every six months. That's like, that's like a regular slaughter, a regular massacre. That is terrible. And we're doing that to ourselves. And it's, um, it really stems out of the fatherlessness. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's the story that I see unfolding from the, from the statistics. Um, you go ahead and share what you think, but, um, Homicide rate. So the best way to combat that in your own home is um, is uh, having the father present. Fathers, you are important. You are so so important. And um, you know have that being you know that dynamic between the husband and wife and bringing that union together is su- super huge. Um, And then also, I think it just stems, it also kind of, just like the reading does, it has an effect on the extended family when a marriage stays together and when a father is respected in his home and when, you know, when a wife and kids give that respect and a father is invited and encouraged to to lead and have his word mean something in the home. Really important. Um... You know, the epidemic of the the homicide rate in the cities, um, I think there are other things that fold into that. You know, um, the incarceration rates, the, le- the, the tort system that, you know, um, how, you know, how often people go back into the society um, after being incarcerated and things like that. Um, but the question of like people going into the systems in the first place, respecting the law when the fathers... Um, instill that discipline and teach that confidence, um, there is very little incentive for boys to go and get, go into the, the street life, you know, and it is admitted, let's admit it. It is not, it is very difficult for a mother to instill the same, you know, fear of Jesus and, and self-respect that a father can in a son. Um, that's topic for another day cause it's gigantic, but, um, how you how how a father's authority is carried in the home, I think, speaks volumes to the sons, and that also perpetuates the next generation how they're going to run their families. 
It's super important. So um, that daddy instinct is uh, is important. I'm way over time again. Um, so we're going to have to talk about out of wedlock babies in, oh, and the other, uh, the last one, which would, would be blind allegiance to progressive ideas in the very next episode. So part three. So it's still episode five, but it's part three. Thank you so much for listening and can't wait to hear your comments.